Romans chapter 11, if you'll turn there with me, and verse 33. It's appropriate that we look at this passage solely deo, on the glory of God, soli deo gloria, the fifth sola of the Reformation, on what would typically be called Reformation Sunday. Why would this be Reformation Sunday? Because Saturday, October 31st, uh, would be the anniversary of when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the Wittenberg door. October 31st, 1517. So we're actually two years away from the 500-year anniversary of Martin Luther nailing the 95 Theses to the Wittenberg door. And so this would technically be Reformation Sunday. So it's appropriate to end a, a series on the five solas of the Reformation, the five alones, um, on this particular day. So look with me, if you will, at Romans 11, Romans 11 and verse 33. <clears throat> Excuse me. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we study your word this morning, as we consider what happened to the apostle Paul as he explains the gospel for so many chapters, how he reaches the end of his ability to explain it and reaches the point in which he must just break forth in worship. Pray that as we look at this text, as we see what it is that Paul was saying to the church at Rome and what your spirit, therefore, was saying to the church at Rome and to us, even today, we pray that your word would have a great effect on our hearts and minds. Pray as we see how this understanding, soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone, changed the understanding of the world for the Protestant reformers and for us, that we would give due thanks, proper thanks to you when you, by the power of your Spirit, shone light into darkness. I pray that we'd honor you this morning in that. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, Paul starts this section of his letter in Romans 11 with a single expression. Single expression or a single word, if you look there, he's been preaching for, if you will, or writing for 11 chapters on the gospel, 11 chapters explaining the doctrine of salvation, the grace of God, the mercy of God in Christ. He's been doing that chapter after chapter. What's your condition? How did God resolve your condition in Christ? How do you receive the resolution of your, of your condition in Christ through faith alone? What happens as a result of that? You've been united to Christ. And what comes about as a result of that? The power of sin. Not only, not only the penalty of sin in your life is broken, but the power of sin in your life has been broken. And what comes about as a result of that? The presence of sin will eventually be removed from your life as you're resurrected and you belong to Christ. And how do we deal with the fact that several of the people we know and love aren't coming to Christ? And he gets into the the fact that it's the grace of God alone, and God is mercy on whom he has mercy, and he shows compassion to me as compassion. And how do we explain all this, Paul? And Paul goes on for 11 chapters trying to explain it, trying to lay it out. And it's almost all, as one, as all at once he hits this point in which he's run out of words. He's reached the point of which he's exhausted his ability to explain it. It's too deep for him. And he says, oh. Why, why does he start with that word, oh? It's an exclamation of worship and delight. It's an exclamation I've heard more than once since knowing John Bryant than I've ever heard in my life. 
If you don't know John, you should go to a meal with him, a good meal with him. And, and you'll hear an expression of worship and delight as he takes a bite of a good meal. We, Jason and I laugh every time, every time we're out with him. Takes a bite, he goes, oh. Oh, brothers. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> brothers. Oh. I think John's meal is better than mine. (laughs) Why did I order the salad again? He's thin and I'm not. I'm eating salad and look at him. Anyway, he's rejoicing. (laughs) He doesn't even have to describe the food. He just, with that exclamation... Tells us of his joy in what he's eating. Now while Jason and I laugh every time this happens. We appreciate it because John is showing some kind of. If you will putting some kind of giant exclamation point on his meal. And that's essentially what happens when you see a bride walk down the aisle. And you can almost through his face hear the groom. Oh. She's mine. And that's the kind of expression, that big exclamation point that that Paul is really using to explain the grace of God and the gospel. He reaches a point of need to just break into worship and praise. He's been explaining the grace and purpose of God and salvation for 11 chapters. And now he reaches this point at which he's run out of words. He's run out of ways to describe it. He's reached the point at which he's now out of his depth. And all he has left is to exclaim, Oh, the depths. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. He just breaks out in expressible praise and joy. See, Paul's theology leads him to worship. Theology done properly must lead to doxology or praise, worship. And that's what we see in Paul. He can't reflect on the gospel of God without coming to the end of his ability to articulate these matters and without being moved to worship. And this is what contemplation of God's character and God's works ought to do for us. To learn the word of God To study theology divorced from breaking out in worship is an abhorrent practice. On the flip side, there are folks out there who want to jump right into worship. It's kind of a contentless experience. But it matters who you worship and why you worship. It's not enough to just have an experience of worship divorced from recognizing the truth about the object of your worship. It's not that you're moved to worship and then at some point you contemplate the truth about him. It's that you're contemplating the truth about him and that moves you to worship. That's why I despise so much of popular Christian music. I turn on Christian music and I feel like I can just take Jesus out and put my boyfriend or girlfriend in and essentially have the same experience. It uses music to mess with my emotions. That's what a lot of popular Christian music does. It's actually lately been getting a little better lyrically than it used to be. But it, it, it uses music to mess with my emotions, but, it, but says little that's meaningful about the Lord. Some of the songs I don't even understand, and they mix the metaphors so much I'm not sure what to make of it. First they want me to burn with fire, and then they want me to be flooded with water. And I don't know, which is it? Do you want me to be consumed with fire or flooded with water? And both those imageries are really bad in the Bible. 
When you're flooded with water, that's God's judgment drowning you. And when you're consumed with fire, anyway, you guys follow? But somehow that's an expression of emotion. I'm never sure what to make of it. Let, let's, let's be clear. You can be moved by all manner of emotional experiences without it being worship. You can go to a secular concert and they can move you emotionally. You can be moved by secular art and secular theater and secular movies. But true worship is not found in being emotionally moved. True worship is, being found, is found really in being stunned by the truth about God and his works. John Stott said it this way. The worship of God is evoked, informed, and inspired by the vision of God. Worship without theology is bound to degenerate into idolatry. Hence the indispensable place of scripture in both public worship and private devotion. It is the word of God which calls forth the worship of God. On the other hand, there should be no theology without doxology or praise. There's something fundamentally flawed about a purely academic interest in God. God is not an appropriate object for cool, critical, detached, scientific observation and evaluation. No, the true knowledge of God will always lead us to worship as it did Paul. Our place is on our faces before him in adoration. As I believe Bishop Hanley Mole said at the end of the last century, we must Beware of an equally undevotional theology and an untheological devotion. And Paul is participating in biblical worship. He's modeling it for us. He's contemplating God and his works, and that moves him to worship. He's reflecting on God's character and God's works, and as he does, he re- and he's reflecting on Scripture, and as he does, he's moved to worship. He's not moved by musical instruments. He isn't moved by, you know, this kind of moving rhetoric. He's just moved by contemplation of the Word of God. So we are going to follow this exclamation of the praise of Paul, and hopefully we're going to join him in worship. Hopefully. Please, please don't misunderstand my goal, though. I just... I don't want you to misunderstand my goal today because the danger of bringing up music as an example of worship is that too often we think that music is the extent of worship. That isn't my point. We, we even call the music guy the worship leader. What a burdensome job title that is, isn't it? If worship is all of life, he leads all of it. Man, how does that guy do that? That's pretty talented use of a guitar. Music is not the comprehensive descriptor of worship. We, we, we will tend to walk out of church and say, the worship was good today. By which we mean the music moved us. L- listen, l- let me clarify. You're not the one being worshipped, so you're not the judge of whether it was good. God's the one being worshipped. Who cares whether we think it was good? Who's being worshipped? God is. So who does it matter that they think it's good? God does. Our assessment of the goodness of worship is useless. It's complete rubbish. God's assessment of worship is what matters because he's the object of worship. Further, the music is not the center of worship and corporate worship. The word is, and by the word, I don't just mean the word preached, but the word read, the word prayed, the word sung, the word displayed in the Lord's Supper and baptism. That's the center of corporate worship. So as we talk about Paul's worship of God and how we ought to join him in that worship, I do not mean to limit it to just worship as music. I don't want you to hear that. In fact, Paul will tell us what he means by worship in the very next verse. Look at Romans 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, brothers, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. In other words, you're presenting yourself as a living sacrifice. It's kind of an oxymoronic statement, isn't it? A living sacrifice. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. In other words, your whole life is given over to him, holy and acceptable to God, which is your Spiritual worship. In other words, Paul describes the whole of the Christian life as worship. 
Everything about your life is worship. What Paul is saying is that to worship God is to pour out your life for his glory. Once you understand who God is and what God has done and why God has done it, you will desire nothing more than to sacrifice every aspect of your life as an act of worship. So let's start with who God is. Back at Romans 11 and verse 33. Who is God? Oh, the depth. Oh, the depth of. In other words, Paul's reached this point where he, he just can't quite go deep enough in his explanation. He's, he's sounded the bottom of the sea of God's glory, and he sounded it, he realizes he'll never reach the bottom. He's out of resources to explain it. God's character is incomprehensible for him. He's explained it the best he can. He's run out of resources. And so he's turned to this point where he just prays and says, Oh, the depth. The depth of what? The riches. Three things. The riches, the wisdom, and the knowledge. The depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. What he's summing up there is the depth of the riches of God. He's talking about his goodness. We have all the riches of God in Christ Jesus. He's talking about God's mercy and justice and righteousness and holy and wrath and gr- holiness and wrath and grace and love. Oh, the depth of the riches of God. God shows his kindness to us in this, right? He shows his kindness to us. How? He pours out his riches on us. This rich goodness of God. is Oh, the depth of it. I've been explaining the gospel to you for 11 chapters, trying to help you understand God's election, God's grace, God's mercy, God's love, God's righteousness, God's holiness, God's wrath. I want you to understand who God is his, in his goodness. I want you to understand his character. And I've just reached the point where after all the explanation I've given you, all I have left to say is, oh, the depth of the riches of God. His wisdom. He's talking about God's decrees. God's decrees. What he decided before the foundation of the world is always right. He's wise. He never makes an unwise decision. Ever. We might think he makes unwise decisions. He never makes one. He is wise. He is infinitely wise. He is so wise that I reach the point where I say, oh, the depth of God's wisdom in all his decrees, his knowledge. He knows everything. He has divine, meticulous foreknowledge of everything. He knows everything He accounts for it all. Nothing slips his notice. Nothing takes him by surprise because of who he is and what he decides and what he knows. And Paul's just saying, I've just reached the end of myself. These are three aspects of the depths of God which sum up in Paul's mind here the inestimable, inestimable, sorry, perfections of God in his character and acts. And Paul then jumps into a statement that makes clear he's run out of resources. He makes it clear he's run out of resources in explaining the plans and purposes of God and his mighty acts of salvation and justice or judgment. Look at his next phrase. How unsearchable are his judgments. You know what that means? I can't even search his judgments out. His wisdom and knowledge are so deep. His character and grace, the riches of who he is is so deep, I can't can't even search out his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. I cannot draw a line from here to there and somehow cross over God's ways and figure them all out. It's not going to happen. I can't circumscribe God. I can't draw a circle around him and say, here's a circle around God's character and God's wrath, I mean, sorry, character and God's ways or wisdom and God's knowledge. I can't do it. He's incircumscribable. He's incomprehensible. Now, can he be described? Yes. One of the reasons I don't like the song, Indescribable. God can be described. There's a whole book about him. 66 of them. So clearly somebody thought he could be described. But, but he, so he's not indescribable. But he's incomprehensible. 
Even though we have descriptions of them that are true, they're not exhaustive. We can't possibly wrap our minds around the providential and saving decrees and works of God. We can't possibly sound the depths of his goodness and wisdom and plans. But so many of us object to how God does things and what God plans, don't we? Let's be honest about it. We object all the time. God, I don't trust your providential working out of things. See, if I were God, I wouldn't permit sin or evil. If I were God, I wouldn't let these horrible things happen in life. If I were God, we think that somehow we know better than he. Every time the thought comes in your mouth or your mind, if I were him, realize you're about to commit blasphemy. You're not. You're not him. We think, though, that somehow we know better than he does. We think our plans and our purposes would be more well-constructed in some way. Further, we're not convinced that God's way of working things out is fair or right. We think we deserve better. How come God only saves some people? I wouldn't. Imagining ourselves somehow more merciful than he would, than he is. That's not fair. How come God has given me this suffering and not him? It's not fair. Haven't I been good? Don't I deserve better? Why do he make me like this? How can we make him like that? Don't I deserve better? Paul knows this about this. In fact, he responds with a couple of questions, knowing this is the case. Look at verse 34. Who, for who, has known the mind of the Lord? In other words, his explanation is, you, we can't even plumb the depths of his riches, of his wisdom, of his knowledge. We can't comprehend all that he is and does. Why? For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who's known it? And the second question, which is the follow-up that fits with it, or who has been his counselor? Who? Isaiah 40, 13. Paul's actually quoting Isaiah 40, 13. And he says this in Isaiah. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? I say the mind of the Lord. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who's measured the spirit of the Lord? That, those words are being used interchangeably here. Who's measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him counsel? Do you know what Paul is graciously saying here? You stand before a holy, omnipotent, that means all-powerful, omniscient, that means all-knowing, omnipresent, that means ever-present God, and you need to close your mouth. By the way, prayer, you know, prayer is not a divine suggestion box through which we give God counsel. Prayer is an act of submission through which we act God to bend our wills to his and cause our hearts to rejoice in him, whatever his answer. None of us counsel him. The sooner that we get a hold of the fact that we don't know the mind of the Lord, that we don't counsel him, the sooner we come to the point where we worship as Paul does here and where we experience the joy of our salvation. He goes on, the next question, verse 35, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? In other words, what have you done to cause God to be a debtor? He's quoting from Job, by the way, 41.11. What have you ever given? God created the heavens and the earth. He created everything. He created you. Everything you have, he created. Everything you receive, every event of your life, he is governing. What have you ever given to him? that he owes you something. That you could ever claim that anything's not fair. He owes you nothing. How much does God owe me? Nothing. Nothing. How much is God seeking out my advice on things? Zero. God is not like, let's pray, because I would like some good insight into how to handle this. You know what, you're right. You've done some things that have really benefited me. I know that I created everything ex nihilo out of nothing. 
By the word of my mouth, I created it all. I govern everything, every breath you have, everything you receive. I own it all. I redeem everything. I chose to send my son because of my great love and grace. Not because you asked for it. You fled from me. You rebelled against me. You sinned against me. But I sent him to seek and save the lost. I sent him to give his life on the cross for you to pay for your sins. I raised him from the dead so that you might be justified and declared righteous. I caused him to ascend to my right hand and gave him a kingdom. Every kingdom. So that he rules and reigns and ever intercedes for you. I'm going to send him back to resurrect you from the dead. And I'm going to create a new heavens and new earth, which you'll inherit all of. And what did you contribute to any of that? I don't owe you anything. If it were you planning it, it would never work out this gloriously. You can't possibly understand We cannot possibly wrap our minds around how glorious God is, how good he is, how gracious he is, how we don't, he never owes us a thing. We can never indebt him to us. He's not needing our counsel ever. He's always right. He's always good. He owns everything. And therefore, we have no right to make demands. So we cannot claim that God's ways are not fair. He created all things and he does all his holy will. And all we're left to do is to shut our mouths. You know, the Bible tells you what's going to happen when you stand before the Lord, when you see him in his glory. You know what's not going to happen? You're not going to say, God, I want you to explain some things to me because I wouldn't have done it this way. Let me tell you about some things that you owe me. I don't think that these things were... Paul says that you're going to stand before him and your mouth is going to be shut. What happens when Isaiah sees just really a glimpse of the glory of the Lord? Does he protest? Does he give him counsel? Does he offer him advice? It's kind of a ridiculous thing that a creature would think that we could offer our creator advice or that a creature would think that somehow our creator owes us anything. What does Isaiah say? Woe is me. He, he gives a curse to himself. Woe is me, for I'm an unclean man, and I live among, with unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. I'm coming apart at the seams. <clears throat> Woe is me, I'm undone. It's like he's saying, I'm unraveling in the presence of God. We can only worship him. Now listen, I'm not saying that working out things like the philosophical problem of evil or the euthyphro dilemma or what have you are unimportant. If you don't know what those are, you're probably better off for it. But here's the thing. I'm not saying that they're not worth working out. It's fine to answer these questions, but we must erect our answers on the fundamental premise that we are not God and can't possibly comprehend why he acts the way he does. Further, we must answer these questions in submission to God's word. Let's face it, much of the philosophy we struggle with is because of our arrogance in failing to believe the word of God and being satisfied with his answers to what he wants to tell us and being satisfied with what he doesn't want to tell us. You know there are questions God doesn't answer for you? Go to the Bible and try to find the answer to your question. Say, why doesn't he answer it? Maybe because you shouldn't be asking it. Maybe he's told you all the things when he gives you all these answers. Maybe he's told you all the questions he thinks are important for you to ask. Could it be that God actually knows which questions are important? But we're arrogant creatures. God has given us his word. Even the greatest scholars, I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but even the greatest scholars in a lifetime will tell you that they can't plumb the depths of God's word. And here's the thing about that. Even as deep as the word is, no matter how great a scholar of the word a man becomes, he's merely interacting with what for God is baby talk. So again, this Bible is deep. For God, it's baby talk. It's him condescending to the creature. And it's too much for us 
How many of you have plumbed the depths of it and know it that well? And for him, it's just like talking to a baby. And God is not a subject of debate. God is and needs to be worshipped. That's why the pastor, um, 20th century British pastor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, said he would never debate atheists about God's existence. He was offered and he said no. He actually said he wondered how anyone who knows this God can just coolly sit and discuss whether or not he's there as a matter of academic debate. You're not going to sit around and talk about whether or not he's there. He's there. We don't need to debate. You need to repent. God is and he's to be worshipped and he's incomprehensible. We cannot possibly come to know everything about him. Even in eternity. Even when you die and see him. While you will know him truly, you will never know him fully. Ever. He's infinite. You cannot plumb his depths. What you know will be true knowledge, but it will not be exhaustive. You will learn for eternity about God and never reach the end. Yes, we can know the truth about God and what he's doing. We can. In fact, we're expected to know the truth, but we cannot know it comprehensively. We're responsible to know what he's disclosed in his word, the Bible. And where he is quiet, our mouths should be shut as well. John Calvin, one of the Protestant reformers, said it this way. Whenever there... Wherever, excuse me, whenever then we enter on a discourse respecting the eternal counsels of God, let a bridle be always set on our thoughts and tongue, so that after having spoken soberly and within the limits of God's word, our reasoning may at last end in admiration. That's, this leads to Paul's description of what God has done. What has God done? Look at verse 36. This is who God is. Let's see what he's done. Notice these three descriptors for from him. In other words, why are we, our mouths shut before him? Why do we not, is he not indebted to us for from him and through him and to him are all things? What's Paul saying here? From him. Scholars argue is is Paul's reference to God's creation. He created all things. All things are from him. They're out of him. Through him, talks about God's providential governing of all things. He rules them all. He governs them all. They're all sustained by the word of his power. And to him, speaks about his redeeming of all things. His reconciling of all things in Christ. He created all things. He governs all things. He's redeeming all things to himself in Christ. In fact, Paul picks this up in Colossians 1. Look at Colossians 1 and verse 15. Keep your hands in Romans 11 as well. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15. Colossians 1, verse 15. He is the image, speaking of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, the prototokos, the supreme one, the inheritor of all creation. For by him all things were created. See, they're all from him. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him, And for him. And for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, Christ, to reconcile to himself all things. Whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross. See, it's impossible to speak of God as the creator and governor and redeemer of all things in Christ without speaking about why he does all those things. And Paul gets at that. Go back to Romans 11. Notice what he says. 
For from him and through him and to him are all things. And now Paul has to continue his exclamation of praise as he talks about why he did all these things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Why did God all do all this? What's the end, the telos, the goal to which God did it for his own glory? For his own glory. God did it all for his own glory. As a result of this, the mantra of the reformers, the Protestant reformers, became soli deo gloria. To God be the glory alone. This changed the reformers' view of the whole world. In fact, this is so impacted them that when they um, came to the Westminster Assembly, they actually wrote their catechism for the purpose of training illiterate or uneducated adults and children, their first question was this, what is the chief end of man? And their answer, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. See, if general creation and providence are for God's glory, they understood that if those are for God's glory, then, then what does that say about everything? About everything. What does it say about music or art or philosophy, or science, or math, or history, or literature. The reformers did not have to baptize them and call them Christian music or Christian art for them to be good. God's created order is good and is for his glory. Thus, I can rejoice in good secular music or good secular art or philosophy or science or math or history or literature. That's why the great musician Johann Sebastian Bach, you guys know who he is? He, he, he didn't write church music, you know that? He wrote, wrote music for the masses, for the church for sure. But all of his songs, you know how he signed them? S, three initials, S, D, G. Soli Deo Gloria. To the glory of God alone. Now, to play this all out, I would have to make a lot of nuances with regard to all those fields of inquiry and knowledge. But, but let me just say this. If a secular artist or musician or historian, there's a lot more nuance to put here, a lot more borders and boundaries. But if a secular, just in general, if a secular artist or musician or historian or philosopher or mathematician or scientist practices in their field for the glory of God in submission to Christ and his word, then he glorifies God. They don't have to write songs about Jesus or draw spiritual pictures or do Christian math to honor him. They don't have to do Christian plumbing or do Christian gardening or anything else. We don't have to baptize everything, folks. God created everything and governs everything for his glory. We don't have to yank it all into the church and the salvific realm or the redemptive order, if you will, in order to make it worthwhile. When a woman is home changing the diapers of her child to the glory of God, that glorifies him. She doesn't have to wipe his butt with a Christian butt wiping. She just has to glorify God as she cleans up her child. And it's good. This changed the way the reformers viewed vocation. All vocations honor God in their mind. All, I mean, obviously a sinful one wouldn't. But all vocations honor God. You could be a woodworker and craft projects for the glory of God. You didn't have to build crosses when you did woodworking. You could just build a nice chair or a nice cabinet for the glory of God. You know this changed art? If you ever have a chance to go to the London Museum of Art and just watch how art changed the periods, I encourage you to do it. I've gone there, and I am just blown away. You go into the 13th and 14th century, and all of the, all of the paintings have paintings of, everybody's got these little halos and those little funky angel babies. You know what I'm talking about? Every painting. But as you move in to where the Reformation happens... As you move into the where the Reformation happens, suddenly the art all changes. And everybody doesn't have halos. You just got a guy out there tilling his field. No halo, just normal looking. You know why? Because the Protestants realize that glorifies God. God created that. It's good. He can do everything to the glory of God. You can be a stay-at-home mom and wash dishes to the glory of God. 
God created and governs all things for his glory, and thus you can glorify him in all of your secular callings. I think sometimes we suspect that if we're not preaching the word like a pastor or doing missions like a missionary, that we're not really glorifying God. And so we want to go and baptize all of our secular vocations and somehow pull them into the redemptive order to make them worthwhile. You don't have to. It's good if you do it for the glory of God. In fact, a mom can be at home right now taking care of her sick kid for the glory of God and giving more honor to God than I am when I'm preaching if I'm not doing it for the glory of God. All of this changed the reformers' understanding of the state, which eventually led to our notions of freedom and liberty, and I don't have time to explore that. But for the reformers, understanding creation and providence without redemption, because all I've talked about is creation and providence apart from redemption. To understand creation and providence without redemption is like a theater with a stage and actors, but no play, no drama. It's like an orchestra with instruments and musicians and a conductor, but no music. Like books with words on a page and no story. As Calvin said, all of creation is a theater for God's glory. And the and center stage of that theater is the drama of redemption in Christ being played out. And the pur- that purpose is found in Christ who redeems all things in himself, in heaven and on earth. And that changed the way the Protestants viewed worship. Worship must extol the finished work of Christ. If your worship does not point to the finished work of Christ on the cross and the resurrection, then your worship for them is fundamentally flawed. It changed the way they saw worship in the sense that they said all of worship must be word-centered. we got to get rid of all of the other stuff. They actually simplified worship dramatically because they thought the rest of it None of that stuff God commands. God commands what he wants in worship, so we do that. The rest of that's just to titillate us. So let's get rid of it. Therefore, they started arguing that pastors, because worship was word-centered, pastors must be trained well in the original languages. Pastors must be trained well in theology and church history and historical theology. They must be present with their people to teach them the word. And they argued that we should sing the word. And pray the word. And preach the word. The reformers really dismantled corporate worship in Rome. They dismantled the Roman Catholic corporate worship. And said, let's get back to the word. Every element which was not commanded in scripture, they took out. You know, they even actually didn't use musical instruments. I know. How could they even worship God without musical instruments? They only sang psalms usually. How how could they do that? I mean, where's the fun in that? I I don't know if you guys are aware of this. The first thousand years of the church in Christianity didn't use musical instruments. Largely just sung scripture. A couple hundred years of the Protestant Reformation, they went back to that. We're all sitting around arguing about whether or not we should sing hymns or contemporary praise courses. Man, those people that want contemporary praise courses, they're kind of liberal. We're sliding off the cliff. They're like, if you move away from singing scripture, you're liberal. Man, those guys, they're moving from the piano to the guitar. Liberalism is setting in. Next thing you know, homosexual marriage. They thought instruments were liberal. I mean, it's, it's amazing how we lose historical moorings and, and then we, we, we don't even argue over the right questions anymore. Now, now, obviously, we don't think there's a problem with not only singing psalms or there's a problem with using instruments. However, my point is, these guys were saying and asking very hard questions about what does God command? Let's just do that. Appropriately, they were asking those questions. We ought to be asking those questions. We don't need to get into arguments about whether an organ or a piano or a rock band or whether a hymn or a praise chorus. We need to get into the discussions about what does God command? Let's do those things. And work that out. They realize the worship service is for God's glory and thus we ought to let God determine how God is worshipped. They also change their view of missions and preaching. You know that? 
They didn't give homilies anymore. They started saying, we just got to teach through books of the Bible. We got to teach the people what the word of God says. They believed the word needed to be preached in the common man's language. It needed to be translated in the common man's language. And that we'll only see folks to come to Christ through preaching the word in the common man's language. And thus, then they set up missions. They didn't go in and set up a mission and try to re-engineer the society. They went in and preached the gospel because they believed the word of God was going to work to change the lives of people. It changed the Protestants' view of education. They believed that we needed to start schools universally so all kids could learn to read their Bibles. In fact, I don't know if you are aware of this, but Luther and Calvin were two of the first men in history who called for universal education. Did you know that? Two of the first men in history who called for universal education. Now, by that, they don't mean government education. They meant that all children need to be educated and that the church ought to assist the family in doing that for the glory of God. I don't know if you guys know this, but the the first universal education law in America was passed in New England colonies. Do you guys know what it was called? A couple of you probably do. The Old Deluder Satan Act. What a weird law, huh? Strange name. That Old Deluder Satan. Why do we need to have compulsory education for all the kids? And by that, they didn't mean the government was doing it. They meant the churches were doing the family. Why do we have? Because they're going to be led off into what? The lies of Satan, so we better educate them or disciple them so they're prepared to fight that old deluder Satan. It was a call for Christian education by families with the help of the church for the glory of God. I'm not certain the reformers or the Puritans or those who followed them would even understand the concept of godless, Christless education. Because for them, education is discipleship, and the purpose of it is to teach children the truths of God's creation and providence and redemption for his glory. Education for them could not even be divorced from that. It's not education anymore, except making you a disciple of the devil. That would have been their perspective. Soli Dea Gloria changed their view of the family. They knew they needed family worship. They wrote catechisms so families could memorize good doctrine at home and pray well at home. They would actually have families memorize the catechisms. You know, Catholics didn't bring catechism back. Catechism was in the early church. The Protestants brought it back in the early 1500s. When the Roman Catholics saw that the Protestant families were becoming well catechized in their doctrine, the Roman Catholics brought it in in the Counter-Reformation in the 1560s. But the Protestants brought it back because they said, our people aren't literate, they can't read their Bibles, so we better give them some good theology to memorize at home. So we'll give them catechism, we'll teach them questions and answers so they have basic doctrine. We'll give them the Lord's Prayer so they memorize that so they know how to pray. We'll give them the Ten Commandments so they can memorize that so they know the law, how to live. It changed the way they said, the families need to worship at home. So Soli Dea Gloria was not just a slogan, it changed everything. And this is not just a slogan for us at Sovereign Grace. God did everything for his own glory, and we as individuals and we as a corporate body must do everything for his glory as well. This is our last Sunday at Liberty High School. Next week we go to Frontier. Over the last several years, we've been blessed to see many people turn to Christ and be saved. We've seen churches planted, seen men begin seminary training. We've helped people in a variety of ways. We've seen missions, a missions training organization begin for the training of people to go and to unreached people groups, preach the gospel to them in their tongue. We've been given land where we hope to build a more long-term church home. We've seen our church membership and leadership team grow. And now we're moving to Frontier High, and shortly we have plans to, to bring forward about a building so where, where are we going from here? Where are we going from here? You know, I really don't know. That's, that's reassuring, isn't it? I don't know. I have no idea what the Lord will do. I had no idea he would do this. No idea. Here, here's what I know. Here's our central concern. Has been for the beginning, it remains our central concern. Whatever we do in word or deed, we do it all for the glory of the Lord. All of it. 
My central concern is that we remain a church that worships, a church that proclaims soli deo gloria, a church that never gets bored with or tires of the gospel, but who upon every contemplation of the Lord and his work responds with Paul, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and to him and through him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would work powerfully in our church and our lives so that we would understand what you have revealed about yourself and your works and that we would be sufficiently humbled in the knowledge that we can never sound the depths of your character and your works that we would be moved to worship to praise by what you have done by who you are that would be central for this church going forward be central for our families and to our lives that we would do all things soli deo gloria to the glory of God alone. We are thankful, Father, that you shined light into darkness in, in the 1500s and that we recaptured the truth that Scripture alone is our authority. The truth that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. We pray that would be our song, our meditation, that would sufficiently humble us, cause in us great joy, and lead us out to mission and proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.